The scientific revolution starts now. At present, I'm the science director for the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, and I also run Cycles Research Institute. But now that we've joined together with them, that's sort of just the historic things mainly. Uh, I guess I first got interested in cycles uh, as a teenager when some family friends gave me a uh, issue, the uh, Sky and Telescope magazine um, for my birthday, and they did that for a number of years. So I had lots of these, and every every month it had um, the um, sunspot numbers daily. Uh, so I started thought, wonder what these are good for? Because I knew there was an eleven-year sunspot cycle, but I started graphing them and. It was a four-month cycle. I thought, I've never heard that one mentioned before. So I started looking what happened in four months. And after a while, I realized that um, Jupiter, Venus, and the Sun made a straight line every four months. Um, and um, Jupiter and Venus are the two planets that have the strongest tidal influence on the Sun. And it so happened that the peaks in the sunspot happened exactly when they were in a straight line. So I started looking at other pairs of planets that had reasonable tidal influence and sure enough um, each of them had the same thing uh, at that stage um, my mode of transport was a bicycle I rode my bike into town uh, went to the to the main library and I started looking up books on the sun and I found oh there's a they had um, um, none of the modern books mentioned except one and it said in the 1800s somebody suggested exactly what I described uh, and, and they said, personally, we think this will just be disproved with time. And I said, ha-ha, you're wrong about that. Uh, it's been proved with time. Later on, I discovered there were, there were a few other ideas on um, how the planets influence the sun and the sunspots. But during that, that was in the 1960s, I was doing that. And in the 1960s... And what was that? What, was, what did it feel like? Were, did you feel like let down by the fact that other people weren't working on the story? Did you feel excited because you thought you'd be able to share it with people? No, or? no I did have that on some other occasions, but uh, they worked out very well. Later on, when I found the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, I used to have people that said, these cycles you found, they're just random things. They're not, it's not real. It's not anything. And um, they were proper statistical tests, so I knew they weren't. But um, when I came across Edward Dewey's work and I found he'd found much of the same stuff as me, um, and he was using different data from uh, different time periods, different countries, and he'd found very accurately the same period cycles in them. Uh, so at that stage, if anyone, if anyone ever tried to make any doubt in my mind, they had no chance whatsoever. Now, who, who, is that, can, who is Edward Dewey? So Edward Dewey was a man who started the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Uh, I found out about him in the 80s by which time I've missed a bit of the story here because the, um, in the, um, so that was the um, 60s when I was doing Sky and Telescope magazine sunspots. Then in the, um, in the 70s, uh, or in the 60s, I also started working later on the 60s and um, I did work for an investments department in the company I was in. So I got interested in that because I thought you can make some money if you can predict the share market. I started looking at the share market and uh, didn't have enough money at that stage, but later I did. Uh, and then uh, um, in the 70s, I started uh, looking at this seriously, trying to do forecasts for businesses of, of um, business conditions. They want to know interest rates, exchange rates, all the usual stuff. And so that, that was okay. 
uh, I, got, I got a lot of data and I started analysing it. And so our cycles jumped out at me. I wasn't looking for them, but there they were. Um, and there, I decided I've got to try and work out how long these cycles are. Now, I've done a little bit of that stuff in university, but uh, it doesn't really sink in because the people that are teaching you don't really know what it's for or how to use it. So you, you've got to find someone that does that. But, uh, but so I started doing cycles analysis and it worked. I got some things that worked okay. And I found there were four cycles I could find in the, in the New Zealand economy where I live. Uh, and they, um, the periods I got were 4.45 years, 5.9 years, 7.15 years, and nine years were just a little under. Later on, when I came across Edward Dewey, um, at the Cycles Foundation, that was in the late 80s, uh, I, went, I went to visit the um, Cycles Foundation. I went a week before their conference and I gave a talk there. Uh, and when I arrived uh, and got sat in the library for a week um, studying all the past stuff that had been written, um, the guy who was the uh, chief executive at that stage sort of wandered through each lunchtime going to and from lunch. And he saw me there each day, and so he came and introduced himself and said, what are you doing here? Uh, and I said, I'm reading all your stuff. I've come from New Zealand. And so he said, uh, "He said, uh, would you like to be one of our international board members? I said, sure, but you don't know enough about me. He says, I know enough. He said, the last guy that sat here for a week ended up as the chief executive. He was talking about himself. Uh, so, yeah. So he knew if I had that much interest, interest something was bound to and be there. And those cycles that you were talking about, those were in financial growth of some sort? Yeah, well, so the ones I was doing, uh, it was aimed at economic ones, but I also included some demographics because I thought that was also important in trade and stuff, you know. Um, so it was, a few, it, was, it was 22 different variables I put in. Um, so when I, when I came to Dewey's paper, uh, there's one called The Case for Cycles, and I highly recommend, recommend anyone who's got an interest in this to, to read that paper. You can find it on cyclesresearchinstitute.org. Um, look for uh, The Case for Cycles by Edward R. Dewey. And in that, he um, lists loads and loads of cycles he found in different things. Um, and he has a little summary table, which is an interesting one. It's, it's got... Um, now, Pythagoras had the frequencies, understood the frequencies of music. And he has this table that's shaped like that, uh, a lambda. Um, and it starts off and it, he divide, he goes by ratios of two one way and three the other way to get the notes because he, in his opinion, all the notes were made by ratios of two and three. And in fact, you get most of them that way, but not all of them. Later on, the father of Galileo uh, corrected him and said there's a ratio of five in there as well, and there is. Um, and they, some other people, like in blues music, they have a ratio of seven as well. So those need to be there, but most of these are done in an Indian music. They have a seven, but he had. Uh, Although you, just from, to be fair, you can actually just keep going in terms. If you just move up in fits, you'll eventually get back to the uh, which is uh, three to two. Yeah, that was what. That's what. Um, that's what. Um, Pythagoras tried to do, but it doesn't quite come back, right? You mm, miss. That's you miss true. It's not tempered. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's, uh, he's, it's called Pythagoras's comma. Um, so, uh, and uh, Galileo's father sort of sol solved that because you don't need to do that. In Indian music, they do move around all those things. We, we, can, we can explain that later, I think, if we want to. Uh, but the, the cycles that he had, starting from 17.75 years, he doubled it. Top 35.5, very close to my 35.6. He divided by two, got 8.88. Uh, 
divided by two, got 4.44, very close to my 4.45. Then he divided it by three, got 5.92, very close to my 5.9. Now, he didn't have, that table doesn't show the 7.15 year one that I got, but he did have that as a common cycle. It's about 7.12, I think he had. So those... So, so, uh, oh, so, so hold on. I want to before before we move on from yeah. this. The, the you you said that you started from from seventeen. Is there a significant seventeen point seven five? Yeah, seventeen point seven five. Where there's no reason for that one that just fits. Okay, All right. So I, I ask myself a lot. What's so special about thirty five point six years or seventeen point seven five years? In fact, they're just members of this whole series going all the way down. But uh, it's so. Um, Later on, we come to why is it that number? Um, it depends on the whole universe. So, um, do we have? Doesn't everything do we, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's right. The whole influence of the universe is on everything else. Uh, do we collect the data and analyze? And when I say analyze, they they did it by hand, right? Uh, he was doing this in the 40s and 50s and the 60s, and they did it by hand. Eventually, he got computers near the end of his life, but um, they had ladies that um, did moving averages, adding all numbers up and subtracting the them and doing this sort of stuff, uh, and they found cycles like that. They did a very thorough job. Uh, they collected data on um, pro- – he says hundreds, but I think it was probably near a 1,000 things he had uh, data on that they had time series – and he said they found thousands of cycles. So in most things, they found more than one cycle. So they, so when he had this table, it was representing the most common cycles, some of the ones that occurred in many different things. So before we before we move on from uh, Dewey, I want to to point out that there was a lot of criticism of his ideas, right? Like people were very from from established economists. People came through and they were like, "I, I don't necessarily think that this is uh, predictive." And so, in terms yeah. of how Dewey himself saw his predictions versus how the rest of the world saw them, how yeah. do you account for that tension? It's also worth mentioning that most economic theories are suffering terribly yeah. in terms of predictive. Yeah, power. like let, we yeah, definitely yeah. should say like, economics is, what, what is you, it, the dismal science? Trying to predict share markets is quite difficult uh, yeah. because there's a lot of people doing it and some of them are very clever and got very powerful computers and they get the data very quickly. Uh, but some other stuff you can predict quite well. Um, I gave a talk about this in the in 1970s at the um, statistical conference and um, I put up my graphs of the different cycles I'd found, and an economist hopped up and he said, oh, that one's the Kondratiev cycle, this is the Schumpeter cycle, this is the Jevon cycle, and this is the Sutnitzer cycle. None of those exist. The only one that exists is the business cycle you've got there, that one. And I thought, that's funny. Why do they give names to things that don't exist? And why am I finding <laughs> things that don't exist that other people previously found that don't exist? I, I managed to answer that question for myself at one point. Oh, I should mention... After he did that, a bunch of other people got up and they said, we're in social services, we're in this, we're in that. That's exactly the cycle that we see in our social services or whatever. So they do exist um, and and they're very real. Um, My view is that economists say they don't exist because uh, they want, most of them are employed by government or government agencies and they've got to say uh, this is... um, uh, this is how you influence things because they want to believe that governments can change things. And mostly they don't. Mostly the things happen regardless. Uh, so um, they've got to I deny. Mean, so it's like they don't want to appreciate the boom bust nature of 
economics. Yes. Well, we've talked about this before on the show where it's the the goal of the state is to exert power. And part of power is... The guiding lights. And it's the guiding light and it's the ability to take some action that will change something so you can take credit for the good stuff and you can say, well, we averted the bad stuff. And so if somebody comes along and is like, hey, it's just noise in terms of of what the universe is doing and the site and what you're doing is is completely washed out by nature... Yeah, I, I can see why that's an unpopular story. Same thing. Story. I mean, Ray, we just had a gentleman on the show who was noting cycles in the galactic, uh, well, the orbit of the solar system through the galaxy as it related yeah. to climate change. And he's a very yeah. well-known physicist, but he's been really given the runaround for even suggesting that you know something other than human beings could be act- in control. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. that's our, I think that's our God complex studies- at play. Yeah, anyone who studies long-term cycles will very quickly come to the conclusion these things have been going on for hundreds of millions of years and are very clear and huge cycles that have massive effects. Um, you can do a whole talk on that, and I have done. Um, but they, but um, yeah, they, the, the, the whole current thing about climate change is a load of nonsense. Um, for a start, uh, CO2 changes do not precede Temperature change. Temperature changes precede CO2 changes. That's it's a really difficult thing to separate out, though, right? Because the historic temperature markers often come down to CO2 and to this oxi- these oxygen isotopes. And it's, it's a very indirect, yeah. it's, it's not as precise of a method as we would hope that sure. it would be. And that was well, actually uh, Nir Shaviv's point where he was like, look, looking at the physics of this, there's some degree of of, temp- of warming that will be caused by human activity. Yeah, th- but I think the majority, that's But what was really yeah. cool is his theory was a cosmic ray theory where he had an electrical theory for cloud formation. And he was Absolutely. like, the ionization that happens in the atmosphere when the sun is weak and cosmic ray radiation is high creates a lot more cloud cover. And And clouds has much more effect than um, carbon dioxide or anything else. The cloud cover, it's only the last decade or two that people have cottoned onto this. Yeah, and it's it's like it's really weird because if cloud cover is the centerpiece and we're going through a... uh, Cycle? If we're going through a cycle, then... Geoengineering is kind of the only thing that can save the cycle, and that really freaks me out. Where I'm yeah, like, because yeah. I was 100% against the idea, where I was like, this is absolutely idiotic. Well, it's, it's either the savior or worse than we could have imagined in the first yeah. place. <laughs> so it's like, we, it's we, we don't need to do anything. Warmer temperatures, um, more CO2. CO2 is plant food. Plants grow faster with more CO2. Crop yields have got better over, recent, over the last few decades. Uh, that's a good thing. Um, more people die when it's cold than when it's hot. Um, so temperatures, warmer temperatures, humans like better. Why do you and, think people uh, are obsessed with CO2? Um, I, I think they're running a racket. Hmm. Go I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, well, there's there's one thing really nice about CO2, which is you can mitigate it really easily, and you can st- put a stamp yeah. on your company that you're a green company if you just deal with CO2. Mm. Meanwhile, you're dumping like toxic sludge into the water tables or whatever, yeah. and as long as you're like, hey, but our CO2 situation's cool. I would go even farther and say that in addition to the toxic sludge stuff, you're basically able to even continue producing CO2 as long as you've offset it <laughs> in a sufficiently yeah. detailed manner. 
I'm a greenie from way back. Uh, I stood for parliament for the New Zealand Values Party in 1975. Whoa. They started wow. up in 1972, one of the first two green parties in the world. And um, so, uh, but uh, I've parted ways with them um, a few, few, some years back when they started calling CO2 pollution. Um, and I said, CO2 is not pollution. It's an essential part of our life cycle uh, of plants and, and animals. But uh, yeah. If we go down this path, we'll never get off it. Um. <laughs> it no, it's worth getting. I, I appreciate you chiming in just because it's a topic that comes up over and over. And it it's, is, yeah, it's yeah. something that I I think that people are very, um, what's the word? There's quite a magic show going on. And so it's it's something worth uh, worth yeah. mentioning, you know. But and, yeah, we can, And it's like the more that we can talk about it in sane ways where yeah. it, it's not about saying that, you know, there's... there's there's a sense of conspiratorial agony about it, but we're just like, look, people make mistakes yeah. and and things become popular in the zeitgeist. Especially if they're profitable. Especially if they're profitable. And it's like, it's not dark yeah. and spooky. It's just like, we should probably look at it directly. And yeah. I, I find that most people are very conspiratorial about it. And I'm like, I, this is just, this is the cycle of human nature. I'm sure that you could track the cycle of crazy they, things that people believe. Yeah, they, they talk, they call, when the temperatures get higher, they call it a cycle, they call it a climate optimum. Right. This is historically what they've called it. Um, after coming out of the last ice age, we had this climate optimum um, some thousands of years ago. And if you look at all the rises of civil, big, great civilizations, the Minoans, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the Renaissance, and now uh, they all occur when the temperatures are up. Um, well, Americans. Yeah, there you go. Hope, hope for the future. Then perhaps we're not entering the fall of civilization. Perhaps this is no, the I birth don't think of so. civilization. No. Yeah. Like um, right, so, ba- yeah, back to the, sorry, didn't mean to derail you with that. It's just a, it's a hot yeah, topic so, for us. So, yeah, it's it's a good topic. Um, so, uh, I found the stuff of Dewey's, and there were all these. Um, even before I got there, I'd started to work on the harmonic series stuff. Um, I'd realised that um, if you had these sort of musical ratios, uh, oh, did I mean I didn't mention those first four cycles? I found uh, turn out. When you multiply them by four, five, six, and eight, um, you get this thirty-five point six year figure roughly. Um, so four, five, six, eight are the frequencies of a major chord in music. And I analysed some uh, wheat prices, and they had all the white notes of the scale plus two black notes in them for a couple of octaves. Uh, so and um, so that was pretty weird. I didn't used to tell people then. I thought, they'll think I'm crazy. But I, I can understand why it happens now, and I don't care if people think I'm crazy. Uh, some people will know I'm not. Uh, so anyway, the uh, um, I realised that um, that this sort of thing happens by nonlinear systems. This was the 1970s, right, when I was first doing this, and then the 80s later. Uh, I realised in the 70s you had the Mandelbrot set, and um, it's based on this very simple equation that produces this whole fancy, very uh, flash mathematical object. If you don't know the Mandelbrot set, I recommend looking it up. Um, it was it was more computer time was spent on two things in the seventies. One was the Mandelbrot set, and the other one was Conway's life. Mm. Um, and the computers went very fast, so it used a lot of time. But uh, so I decided nonlinear equations is the answer because nonlinear equations make harmonics. Yeah, yeah. can we unpack that a little bit? Like the yeah. basic idea with nonlinear equations is that you have a feedback element, from what I understand. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It it's not necessarily feedback. It's it's, it's, bu- uh, it's building upon what came before, right, in the series. 
Yeah, it's uh, the. Um, I'll give you an example. The first one I worked out because when I did the wheat prices, one of the cycles is five point five years, and um, and the sunspot cycle is eleven years. So I thought, okay, the sun could be influencing temperatures on Earth. It could be infra- uh, altering um, rainfall. I didn't know what it was doing, but um, it was definitely seemed to be having an effect on wheat prices. But making two cycles for every one. So I said, let's supposing we got a graph like that. And that's uh, that's either rain. This is this graph dimension is either rainfall or temperature, and this dimension is how fast uh, wheat grows. And so it's going up happens, and down. It's going up and down. But we go. But when we go, travel once across and back, we go up and down twice. Mm. Right. So eleven year cycle produces five point five. So that's the nonlinear equation that the graph that's not a straight line. So as soon as a relationship between two things is not a straight line, it's nonlinear, and as soon as it's nonlinear, any cycle you put in will produce cycles that are harmonics of the original. So I made a big map of um, how the planets affected the sun, how the, how the sun affected all these different things in the climate and all the different things around and how those all affected onto the economy. And I had this big chart. It wasn't supposed to be correct. It was just supposed to show lots and lots and lots of things influencing each other. And if you feed a cycle in somewhere, it's going to produce harmonics. Every step produces more harmonics. But um, eventually I realized you didn't need all that. It's actually just the fabric of the universe oscillating. Um, Dewey kind of realized that too because he found that a lot of cycles are synchronized and um, some of the cycles on Earth also occurred in the sun. But he said the funny thing is there's no delay. In fact, if anything, the Earth seems to slightly precede the solar ones. And there's a reason for that, is that the uh, way, fluctuating waves of the universe take time to reach the centre of the sun and time to come out again. So um, uh, it, we're getting them sooner hmm. uh, because of that. Smaller. Yeah, because, yeah, we could get them directly. Um, and so what am I looking at here? Well, so, so, Oh, I was I was going to ask. So it's like so you say that there's cycles on Earth that happen before they hit the sun. Are there similar cycles that you can see in the other planets? Yeah, in fact, going back to global warming for a moment, um, it's been observed on other planets and moons that, that they have been showing temperature increases as well, which rather kind of indicates it's coming from the sun, not from uh, humans. Wow. Uh, yeah, Pluto's cooled. Like, Pluto cooled something crazy, like. 10 or 20% over the course of a few years when they were studying. Oh, but Pluto's got a very elliptical orbit, so that will play a big part in what happens with Pluto. Mm, Cyclic, though. In my analysis of the planets, I have Pluto in because they hadn't demoted it yet. Uh, So (laughs) you see that in those. Can I I clarify one quick thing really quick? So harmonics, I I just want to unpack that term for people who might not be completely aware of it, but the idea of overtones and the idea of reverberations, can can you... Yeah, so if we take a guitar string and we pluck it, it goes like that, right? You can also get it going like that, making two waves or three waves. And I used to do that sort of thing, um, but it's not so easy on here. Uh, uh, So harmonic is a frequency that is an exact multiple of another frequency. So if you pluck a guitar, because you don't pluck it in the middle and because you make it a sort of an angle shape, when it goes, you'll get all those overtones. So the frequency you're doing, um, if it was, um, say, uh, 300 cycles per second, will produce 150, which is half of that, 100, which is a third, 75, which is a quarter, 
60 which is the fifth and so on all the way down uh, all these harmonics and so uh, uh, they're all present there and usually as you go to the uh, higher harmonics the power will drop off uh, and is that a result of the fundamental interfering with itself or what is the mechanism by which these um, overtones it, it, are generated it, it, it has to well, it has to be a non-linearity probably to, to have that happen um and so what i found is um in anything that's one-dimensional, if you have a non-linearity, you will get harmonics. One-dimensional, uh, sorry, one-dimensional here is in terms of factor analysis. String, I guess. No, this is then the um, when the guitar string goes. It's one. It's a one-dimensional thing. I see. I see. Okay. Um, if you get a drum, it's two-dimensional, but you can do stuff in two dimensions and um, uh, other things in three dimensions. Um, so, so when we think about the fabric of the universe, which I like to call the ether, but you can call it the electromagnetic field if you like. It's just um, easier. I find it easier to understand as an ether. When you do that, um, you've got three dimensions. And when you have three dimensions, you get an entirely different thing to one dimension. In one dimension, it's well known that, um, that you make harmonics when you do, do something, if it's nonlinear. <coughs> Excuse me. But in three dimensions, um, something else happens. Those, those waves that are the harmonics become established in their own right with their own structure. Uh, and so uh, they can then start, they can then have the nonlinearity, nonlinearity acting in them, and they can produce harmonics of themselves. And so that was my insight um, that for the harmonic theory. So the harmonic theory means, uh, and, and to state it in the form I usually do, um, the universe consists of a standing wave, which develops harmonics in brackets because of the nonlinearity. Um, and each of these is also a standing wave and does the same. And that's a bit about does the same. Is the this was my insight to how this whole structure uh, forms in the universe. And when you do that, you get out. A, you get out very quickly. You get out um, musical relationships and tables like Dewey's and so on that people have had as a sort of, as a structure there. Um, and so then the question is, uh, where does it start? It, these are producing higher frequencies from the lower ones. So, so it's natural to look up his table. He had a Dewey had a 71 and 142 year cycles as well. But if we start going a bit longer, um, we actually get up to around 2,300 and 4,600 year cycles, and they've been reported in the climate also. Incidentally, they're also cycles of the four major, the four gas giant planets. Uh, they produce alignments at that interval as well. So, so all of the material, so, so considering all of the material in the universe, and I think the quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics, mechanics, yeah, I think the quantum yeah. mechanics would agree that material is essentially, you know, when we look at the electron or we look at these, what they would call particles, they're essentially talking about these wave functions ultimately. Sure, yeah. yeah. And so the idea is just that these are, are subsets of an even bigger vibration. Absolutely, yeah. So... But when I, I first of all, I thought that the 2,300 and 4,600 came were directly related by powers of two. Now, as I got more accurate figures, the ratio that came out wasn't 64. It was, I got 65.05, uh, which was pretty close to 65. And that made sense because some of the cycles, now Dewey must have noticed this, but he never said anything about it as far as I know. There's a 1.11, a 2.22, and 4.44 for 8.88 year cycles. The sun has cycles of 11.1, 22.2, and so on, 10 times as much or five times if you take them the right way. Uh, so there's got to be a ratio of five in there somewhere as well. Dewey never mentions that. 
And one of the other strong cycles he found uh, in the um, the most studied cycle ever in, uh, is the American stock market cycle, uh, 40.68 months, he called it, uh, which is 3.39 years. Um, and that one, uh, it, it doesn't fit into his table either. Um, but if you divide what's one or two of the other ones by seven, you get these ones. So there's a ratio of five going upwards and seven going downwards. It produced more and more cycles that are found in other things. Um, and so I began to work those out and I realized that this formula I made, um, it would do things, not just powers of two. It would do um, lots of ratios of two and a few of three and less of five and seven and other primes, uh, much less often. So I started calculating them and I did it by hand up to 100 and I noticed the music. Then I did it on the computer up to 1,000 and I noticed that there were some particularly strong harmonics. Uh, there was one at 34,560. Um, and that, that's an important one because then when I started to do it on a computer to uh, higher numbers, um, now, when I was doing this first, we were using computers that were very slow and primitive compared to today's ones. So I did it to 10 to the 20. Next generation of computers came out, I did it to 10 to the 30, 10 to the 40, 10 to the 50. It's, I haven't done any since then. Um, it could be done to 10 to the 60 or 70 now, but it's not really necessary. Those, um, and the, what came out is this very strong harmonic at 34560. There were other ones near powers of that number, not exactly powers, but near powers of that number. So if we talk in orders of magnitude, powers of 10, about every four and a half, there's a strong uh, harmonic predicted by the harmonic theory. When we look at the um, structure of the universe, if we start from the Hubble scale, which is the biggest one we can observe, and divide it by that number, now we're dividing both time and distance because a wave, if if it's all light speed waves, say, whatever the relationship is, or in a guitar, when you go to having two rather than one, it had twice the frequency. So you get twice the frequency and, and half the wavelength, right? So the proportions of the distances and the times all match. Uh, so when you do that, the first strong one predicted is this gives us typical spacing of galaxies. And when you do it again, you get the typical spacing of stars. The next one gives you the typical spacing of um, of um, planets, then the spacing of moons. The next one, next two, there's nothing obvious. The one after that gives the typical spacing of cells. The next one gives you the spacing, uh, typical spacing of atoms and atomic bonds. The next one gives you the typical spacing of nucleons, protons and neutrons in the nucleus. And the next one gives a prediction of quark, quarks, you call them, we call them quarks. Um, and um, so I was able to tell people that, um, 30 years ago, what the scale of quarks would be. Uh, and so, so all that comes out. Now, at that stage, I knew that I had something that really uh, didn't just do cycles, but also explained the structure of the universe because there's no, there's no theories that from, from a simple fundamental principle give those structures in the universe. In fact, hardly anyone's even noticed that there are all these structures at fairly regular ratios. Um, that's because they can't predict them or explain them. Uh, so that's so that one um, at that stage I knew it was something useful, and I looked at each of the different scales because within that the musical structure exists. Those scales are only the strongest points in the whole spectrum. Um, there's a lot of surrounding ones at, near each of those, and so I was able to do stuff with like the galaxy scale. I worked out um, what the um, different galaxy distances should be. Now. 
um, up to then. Hold on, I, I want to stop you really quickly because yeah. there's there's a pretty big spacing variation between galaxies, right? So if you look yes. at the way that things are structured, they seem to be structured in filaments. And so if you look at one way, the distance is small. But if you look at the other way, the distance is orders of magnitude larger. And so yeah. in terms of when you say that it's a cycle that is the 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 a galactic scale cycle or the, the 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 if you if you divide it you end up with the spacing of galaxies what yeah. does that mean in context of this hugely variable sca- sizing yeah. or if you look at something the, like the, the solar system are, right yeah yeah there are in the well the solar system there's basically two scales the scales of the outer planets and the scale of the inner planets That's i was going to come to that next but for example in the um, the biggest scale structures that's been found um, an American and an Australian team decided they'll have a look one each way in space and they'll measure um, the red shifts of galaxies as far as they can out. Uh, they called it, what they called it? Um, they had a name for it. It's just a, a, a thin tube going out a long way rather than doing a wide area. And when they did that, the graph they got showed the um, number of galaxies at different red shifts. Um, which they interpret as distance, right? And so when they do that, the peaks are like about eight times as high as the troughs, very clear and very regular peaks. Mm. Uh, now, that one is interesting because um, the the distance between the uh, peaks, uh, at that stage, they didn't know what the Hubble, um, there's a thing called the Hubble constant. And that's the thing that links red shifts to distance. Uh, because they, the distance ladder is a problem, and it, they've got better and better at this over the last few few decades. But at that stage, they didn't really know. And I was able to say um, that the um, what the value of the Hubble constant would be much more accurately than what they did at that time. Uh, and that was because these uh, these geological cycles, um, one of which is 586 million years. That's that shows up in the climate and all of that, um, as well as half it and a quarter of an eighth of it. That 586 million year cycle corresponds to the wave. That's 586 million light years, right? At, that these into these um, galactic clusters form on. So um, now I've told this to some astronomers, and they say, "Oh, so you you are doing numerology." And I have to say to them, excuse me, you're doing numerology. You've got 586 twice in two different units, and um, and you're saying they have the same thing. I said, no, it's not numerology. I said, if you have a 586 million light year wave, how fast does it oscillate? And they say, well, you've got to do the formula. I said, that's right, do the formula. It's very simple. You know, wavelength, um, wavelength over period equals C. Um, yeah, and they do the equation. Oh, yeah, it is light years, isn't it? Yeah, okay, it's physics. Uh, one guy shouted at me a lot of times before I could actually get him to look at it and say, this is physics. Uh, so that's so that one, um, those two are the same thing as far as I'm concerned, this huge... Uh, and what, can I just point out one really interesting thing about that is that that yeah. only works out because C is a constant. And yeah. the fact that C is a constant, or maybe we can just forget about C for a second and just say the fact that you can make a time-distance conversion here implies some sort of density constancy of this medium 
to me. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, because you yeah. know, otherwise you would have different speeds in different regions and so forth. If you, it's complicated if you, when you. It's complicated though because if you say this to somebody who's a physicist, they're like, "There's no density. There's, there. no, medium. there's, no, <laughs> there's medium. no medium. There's no medium." Which is why yeah, it's yeah. really important to think about the well, electromagnetic uh, field as being an ether type structure, because yeah. then you can rationalize these things as being an actual yeah. effect of something physical, as opposed to just being like, "I don't know, it's yeah. magic." Yeah, and you have a reason did, for did the you? sea to be constant. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that Einstein, Dirac, um, Schrodinger, and all these ones always uh, all believed in an ether? Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, Einstein yeah. had a weird. We, we've talked about this on the show before. It. Well, yeah. he had a weird yeah. non-kinematic ether, and so I think that I've thought a lot about this, and what I think that he was trying to say is that it was a responsive ether rather yeah. than a directing ether. He was well, like, I it's not a thing that he's saying is force. you can't put a mark on the ether and see where it goes, right? right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and that's, so that's the thing. It's, it's something underlying what we observe. It's not what we observe. And so I don't care if they want to do it in terms of electromagnetism. You get the same answers. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. you need more equations. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, we've actually just started thinking about it as the atoms, the, the atoms in a rarefied form themselves that are actually, so as the atoms move, the ether moves in a radial fashion with them. But that's a yeah. topic for a different day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the same thing happens when you get to the um, scale of galaxies. Um, there's there's a, a number of people noticed, Helton uh, Arp and uh, William Tift, a couple of the main ones, but uh, Fred Hoyle was involved in a few others, that um, there was a, this red periodicity, they called it, and red shift of 72 kilometers per second. So if you got a little cluster of galaxies and you looked at all their red shifts, the differences between them tended to be multiples of 72 kilometers per second. Now, if they're really moving in orbit around each other, um, that's impossible because they'll be moving at angle, all sorts of directions, at angles to you, um, you'd be looking across that, so that can't happen. The fact that, as far as I can see, the only way that can happen is if galaxies aren't moving at all. Hmm. Well, can you can you yeah. say more about that? That's kind of a, that's counterintuitive. Well, I'm 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 happy for someone else to come up with another one. Well, um, if galaxies are moving, well, um, the other option I guess is just, just redshifts don't just away yeah. from us. Hmm. The other option is that redshifts just don't mean what we think they mean. Perhaps. Oh, they don't. They don't. Yes, that's the other option. That's what we're coming to. So, but the um, but. But what I, I started off with when I said, well, that looks like about the, the strongest harmonic before the 34,560 was 2,880. And so I divided that into the speed of light and I got 104 kilometers per second. I thought that didn't work. I was supposed to get 72. And for a long time, I didn't uh, understand why that was. And then I remembered Einstein had this velocity addition formula. Uh, if you want to add two velocities, you put velocity A plus velocity B divided by one plus velocity A times velocity B. Uh, and, I, and then I said, okay, how many times do you have to add um, 72 kilometers per second to get to the speed of light? And the answer is, well, you never get there. But after 2880 steps, you get exactly two for the redshift. In other words, a ratio two um, in the um, spectrum of um, distant objects um, is divided by 2880. Now, in harmonic theory, two is the most important harmonic that always happens. So uh, so I said, okay, let's assume this is correct. There's actually be a whole bunch of these things. And I made a graph that showed all of the uh, harmonics out past, um, you're talking about 34560, 
um, using the simple formula, 1 plus z to the power of h equals 2. Um, and so that's the basis of calculating um, where, where at those distances, red shifts come back into a simple ratio um, of the original ones, which means you can get feedback. If the universe is sending energy backs and forwards, then you can get feedback after that. Note that I'm assuming that it can send it back and forwards. There's time that the universe um, communicates with itself over long periods of time because it isn't expanding. Uh, so the the idea is that the redshift standard separation at these in these galaxies is it in these galaxies among these galaxies between uh, us between, between, between us and them yeah. is established by feedback from the for, from the first harmonic the octave. Yeah, yeah, and so then so. Um, when I when I stuck this table on, um, and I used to do a lot of stuff in the Usenet groups um, in the old days before World Wide Web started, really, uh, and um, they were a good discussion forum for physics and cosmology and stuff, and um, and and loads of the establishment would all rubbish me, but a few people would listen, and one of the things that I really love is that uh, some of the very best uh, scientists in any area would send me a private email. They wouldn't ever enter the debate. They would read it. They'd send me a private email saying, look up this paper. And one of those ones was a paper by Tift. Um, and he had already, before I put this thing up, published a paper. Uh, he, I knew about the 72 kilometers a second because a number of people observed that. But he had one paper where he says, there are other ones as well. There's 72, there's 36, there's 24, there's 18 and 9 and 8 and 6 and 3 and 2.67. Um, I look. In the graph I did, in the list I the list I put, I listed twelve values that should appear. His twelve values that he reported, eleven were the same, exactly the same. One, the one that he had different was the two point six seven that I didn't list. But when I went to the graph, I could show people it was the very next strongest one. Right. So, if you want to actually do a test, a statistical test on um, what he had found, and what I had predicted, not knowing about what he had found, um, it, it's about a 10 to the 13 or 10 to the 14 um, probability against that happening. So do you think these like distance redshift correlations have to do with feedback as much as they have to do with distance well, itself? Or how well, does that... I, it's further down the story where I worked out what redshift really is, and I discovered other people had worked it out. This is the thing. Every time I worked something out, I'd go and look and I'd find somebody else had already had that idea, but it was in isolation. And so it didn't all, um, it didn't all hang together, but what I was getting it to hang together. So um, I found the same things at the, at the stellar scale, the uh, distance quanta that fit with the um, cycles periods found, the same thing in the planetary distance fit with cycle periods and on down. It's the same at the atomic scale. And I realized all these things have to be um, the same sort of waves in the same medium. They're all speed of light. They've all got to be in the same medium. And that's why I decided that um, atomic particles are nothing but um, waves. Uh, and, and so I, I put something on the, um, on the internet about that uh, that I thought they were and what I thought the form was. And I got an email from this guy named Milo Wolf. Unfortunately, he's dead now, but he did some very good work. And he said to me, um, oh, welcome to the club. And I said to him, what club? And he said, the club of people that understand that particles are nothing but waves. I said, oh, good. How many people are in the club? He said, two now. 
<laughs> Which is weird uh, because like they were ten uh, within a couple of years. They were ten uh, within a couple of years. Yeah. But like if you talk to a quantum physicist and ask them what a particle is and you keep pushing, keep pushing, you'll eventually get to the fact that it's just an instantaneous measurement of a wave. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. like it always comes down to that eventually. And then you're like, what's the wave in? And they're like, it's in the field. And then it's like, yeah, you're off right. the races, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of them have this wave particle duality. And even very clever people like, um, uh, what's his name? Feynman and Wheeler, uh, who, who were smart cookies. Um, they, Feynman still finished up saying light is a particle. Um, and it's not. It's a purely wave phenomenon. Everything is purely wave phenomenon. Uh, but Wheeler and Feynman got so close because they actually considered the wave nature of an electron. They said there's one wave going out at the speed of light um, from the electron, and it and the frequency of it is is the Compton frequency of an electron, right? It's going out and making one wave, and then they said there's another wave going out. Um, backwards in time, the same sort of wave backwards in time. Now, most of us wouldn't call that a wave going out backwards in time. We'd call it a wave coming in, right, which is what it is. Uh, if you have a wave coming in, when it hits the middle, it passes through and it goes back out again. So um, so it's the same wave after it's passed through the middle. Uh, and once you understand that, the, the obvious question is, how does it know where to arrive, where this electron is? And the answer is, it doesn't know where to arrive. Wherever it arrives, that's where the electron is. Um, that's coming in. Now, a spherical wave, um, it helps to know that a spherical wave can be decomposed into a whole lot of um, plane waves traveling from different directions. If you have plane waves from every direction, um, the place where they have the same phase will look like a spherical wave arriving. Hmm. Yeah, and I would push it even one step further and say when you ask what a, a plane wave really is when it comes to light, it turns out that it's really just a mixture of different helical waves. And so you have yeah. you have a really interesting structure for the ether that starts to emerge. We actually just had Carver Mead from Caltech to talk about this exact situation with, oh, okay. the, yeah. with the, the community. He worked under Feynman, actually, at Caltech. Yeah. And he was basically, the interpretation that we kind of ended up with was that the atoms are essentially you know in communication with one another. Light is actually a conversation yeah. between atoms. It's not just this yes. like, cannonball that's shot into space or something if you have if you take the standing wave that is a particle or a nucleus or something um the wave the wave coming in and the wave going out if you have an electron john jump orbital so that the energy of the atom changes right then the wave that's coming in and the wave going out a slightly different frequency when you actually run, look at that, what actually happens, you actually get a ripple of this different frequency traveling out from the thing or coming yeah. in. And, and that's, what, that's what photons are. Yeah. They're actually just, they're just interference effects of atoms. But at the same time, um, electrons might be interference effects of protons and neutrons. And that, uh, it, you don't know where to end up. But, but the, the same thing sort well, of the problem is really, The problem fundamentally comes down to confusing uh, an activity, right? These waves are an a wave is is a verb. It's it's an activity, yeah. And you confuse it for an object. All of a sudden, you start treating the activity yeah. like an object, and now you've got a whole zoo of all of these objects when they're really yeah, just exactly motions of the same material, just which is necessitated by getting rid of the ether. Like there's no way around this because the minute that you are, say that there's no ether, which is 
yeah. the material that connects them, then you have to start going in these spooky directions because your yeah. model says that there's nothing between them, and so it must be something that's deeply mysterious. Yeah, and unfortunately, people yeah, most love of them, that. Most of them stuff. say there's a zero point field that's everywhere, you know, and stuff like that, and and there is the the, um, the, the calculation I get when you get to very high um, harmonics. Um, there's this vast sea of um, not random ones, but sufficiently unrelated to everything that that near enough looks like it. Um, when I went when I went to Russia, they said to me, uh, "Is it one upon f noise?" I said, "Yeah." Well, I said, "I don't know whether it's one upon f or one upon f squared." Harmonic theory works the same for both, but it's one of those things. But it's not noise, but it's near enough to that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, and just these few sticking up above it harmonics that are the strong ones that are the things we see it's loads that, and loads of other energy in between yeah and i think that that's kind of the tricky thing which is that I, i'm like i actually i pulled up tift's 1978 paper which just to make sure yeah. that it's the right one it is and now the computer's frozen um but basically he he charts all of these different harmonics and he looks at the patterns yeah. and the if you it's called the absolute solar motion and the discrete redshift yeah 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 okay yeah and so the, the, the looking at the data, right? So I haven't read the paper, but you just look at the pictures and the, the correlations are pretty noisy. Like it's not yeah. like it's a clear thing where you look at no. and somebody who is just coming off the street and can look at it can easily be like, that's a, yeah. that, that's a, that's a ratio. It's kind of like yeah. it's, it's smeared. Yeah, I agree. And I think yeah. that that's what makes it difficult is that these, these cycles are often not clear cut which is which makes sense because if you look at a wave that is a pure wave you'll have yeah. something that's really yeah, neat and these clean, lovely shapes yeah but the minute that you have a bunch of cycles that are adding up on top of each other you're going to get stuff that's really hairy and by necessity smeary yeah. and so and, it's and you easy to managed to extract all those things and they agreed with what i had predicted separately from them yeah, and so that's that's the thing, which is like if somebody's looking at it super super closely and is de devoting an enormous amount of time to seeing what's there, they yeah. they can create the the correlations. But it's also easy to stand there and to be like, I don't see it, and I don't think yeah. that it's there. And, and that's faced that problem all his life, and um, his papers were all published because when they gave it to peer review, they couldn't find anything wrong with them, uh, <laughs> so they all got published. But the editors used to write notes. We don't think this is right, but we can't find anything wrong with it. So we're publishing it. You can find something wrong. But some of the ones he did, um, he did uh, two systems that he used as a reference frame. One was the center of our galaxy, and the other one was still relative to the cosmic microwave background radiation. And in either of those, the whole sky shows these 72 kilometers per second um, shells, right, over the whole sky. Um, and you can actually tell that you're at rest because of that. Uh, but there's two rest frames, it seems. One is our galaxy and one is the um, cosmic microwave background. Yeah, what do you make of the cosmic microwave background? Um, well, the first person to correctly predict a, a temperature for the cosmic microwave background, uh, he wasn't trying to do that because he didn't know there was such a thing, but it was um, Eddington. And he said, um, if you calculate what would happen if all the stars light? It may have been related to Olga's paradox, you know. If you take all the light of the stars and it sort of gets scattered by dust and done all these things, eventually, where does it end up? And it, the answer is it ends up at about three degrees K. Uh, the first people that were the Big Bang ones 
when they first predicted it, they predicted 50 degrees K, right? That's how far out they were. Um, and then they found excuses and reasons and stuff to adjust it all to get to three. Um, but Eddington got that number. Um, he didn't have any better facts than them, but he got that one. So I, I suspect Eddington was right that it's um, – Eddington got a few things right. He did a couple of wacky things as well, so he's not that, looked up that much. He did, but he, him and directed the large numbers hypothesis, which also is well worth looking at to understand the large-scale structure of the universe. Mm. Mass luminosity. He also nailed that one. Yeah, what I, I'm 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 frantically looking up the large numbers hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. Well, well there's three th- numbers. Okay. Um, they misstate what they misstate the definition of one. Um, they state the age of the universe and the time that light takes to travel across a particle. Now, um, I, I I think that's a silly way to put it. I think it's the size of the universe compared to the size of an atomic particle, right? Mm. Um, but that's but because they believe in the Big Bang, they think the universe is expanding, so they have they can't do it that way. Um, so that's one. Another one is the strength of gravity compared to the strength of the strong force, um, and they are both both of those are around about ten to the fortieth. And the third occurrence is that the number of particles in the observable universe is about ten to the eighty. So it seems too much coincidence. You got these two ten to the forties and this one ten to the eighty. Um, you can get it down to one. When you understand the wave nature of a particle, if you go out a distance 10 to the 40 um, times a particle's wavelength, then the uh, sphere that you will have has got a surface area of 10 to the 80 um, times the original size of that thing. Hmm. Uh, so now what happens? Um, if the waves, if the particles are talking to each other, if the outgoing wave of one particle becomes the incoming wave of another particle, which is the only way you can recycle the energy, then um, at 10 to the 40th distance, they uh, become the incoming waves of other particles. And that's the distance to which we can see. We can't see further than that, not because the universe stops, but because um, protons and neutron waves are all become the incoming waves. So we can't see one further than that. And relative relative go. to that distance, how far can we actually see at this point? Like relative to the theoretical limit of what we should be able to see, how far can well, we with, see? Well, with the new telescope, they get there pushing right up against it. I and yeah, so what have you? I don't know if you've been following the the James yeah. Webb at all, but the the appearance of these kind of fully formed galaxies super yeah. early in the universe. Yeah. yeah. What's your What's your take on that? Well, I, w- I expect that Big Bang theory doesn't. Mm. Yeah, what's, what's your I think the universe is much older. Yeah, so can you can you walk us through your cosmology? Yeah. Okay. So, having got a lot of cycles from the range of about a week. Now there are shorter cycles that I know, but it doesn't work for those. But from the range of about a week up to five hundred eighty-six billion years, I took the common cycles I knew that I had good periods for, and I um, I stuck them all down down uh, in the computer, and then I took the pattern predicted by the harmonics theory. And um, if you put them on a log scale, then you can just slide them past each other and see where they match. And as you slide them past each other, I started at a billion years because I figured it's got to be longer than that. And I went upwards. And when I got to 10 to the 23, 1.4 times 10 to the 23 years, there's this massive spike sticking up. Uh, And there's a little structure around it of other ones that are ratios two and three and three over two and stuff. But basically... Uh, the answer is very, very clear on that, 
that the, um, the, the size of the universe is 1.3, 1.4 times 10 to the 23 light years, which is um, 10 to the 13 times the Hubble scale. So those steps that I'm talking about, Hubble, galaxy, stars, planets, it's three more steps up from there. And so what, is, what, what does that imply to you? Like, so it- well, um, that implies um, they, they haven't gone big enough yet. We, every so often we've got to increase the size of the universe, don't we? You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a scientific uh, tradition. Well, it was, uh, I mean, I'm always shook by how the Milky Way was the extent of the universe yeah, at yeah, Eddington's yeah. time. Yeah, in the twentieth yes. century. Yeah, yes, it's like yeah, yeah. we've we've increased the size of the universe ago. dramatically in the course of the last hundred years, and I'm not yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure that we're done with the with the expansion. Yeah. So okay, so in your cosmology, you say that there's no such thing as the Big Bang. So do you have an eternal universe? Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, I can just tell you about one other coincidence. This is quite not quite maybe not quite in your uh, down your line, but um, I did the personal meditation. And I heard about the Buddha and some of the things he said, and I started reading some more. And someone asked him, um, how um, you say there's cycles and these long cycles, what's the cycle of the universe? And he said, oh, he says, if you dig a hole seven miles, they use the units of the day, I can't remember what they are, seven miles by seven miles by seven miles, and fill it with sesame seeds, then you take one out every hundred years, when you're finished, that's the cycle of the universe. I said, sesame seed, I'm going to call that a millimetre. Did the calculation and I got 1.4 times 10 to the 23 years. Same as what I got. So he knew something. So hold on, uh, so hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to clarify that. So what I you're saying... did that. So what you're saying is that you uh, went through a, the, the Buddhist text and you took the, the sort of the sage wisdom of the Buddha, calculated yeah. out the number of the years that you would get from that process and yeah. arrived at the same number that you got from this log comparison. What was the data that you were yeah. doing the log comparison of again? Uh, it's it's all the common cycles that Dewey had found. So there's loads of them in the range of a year to sort of um, 100 years. There's lots and lots there. There's a few shorter ones as well. And there's some longer ones. So the longer ones included um, the lo- sort of light years to the nearby galaxies and the uh, uh, and the scale of these very large structures and that, uh, and the geological cycles. Um, there's a, a number of cycles in the sort of million, hundred thousand millions of years in the solar system, and take those ones as well. Yeah. But you were saying that you 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 said that you um, took two of them and you slid them past each other. Yeah, yeah. So on a log scale, um, because on a log scale they've got to match at some point, uh, if the theory is correct. Uh, so. So when I slid along, when I got to 1.4 times 10 to the 23 years, then um, I've got a, um, a CSV file on my website. If you go to ray.tomes.biz, um, you'll find listed somewhere at the bottom a CSV file, uh, and that's got all the that's got the strong harmonics. Uh, it's more than the, the main line of the very strongest. I don't put the whole lot in because it's um, 10 to the 50 of them. I put the um, the, the relatively strong ones in any range. Um, and if you get that CSV file, um, you you can see the, the harmonics there. 
and but, oh, so, but I, I um I'm just trying to understand I'm I'm kind of dense when it comes to this the the like the visualization of charts and so what I'm just trying to understand yeah. is you're saying w- what is the process that you're doing where you say that you sl- like you put it along the log scale and you suddenly get this thing that jumps out like I don't understand the you yeah. you have you have a, a a list of different periodicities right and so yeah what are, right. are you so what are you graphing I start from a billion years and I go up sort of like point one percent the time right. I'm not and sure I, what you mean by you go up by 0.1%. You, you, I, I, take, I start with 1 billion. I keep okay. changing it by a tiny bit. And then I see if that was the cycle of the universe, oh. how, how well would that fit? I the understand. The ones that are observed. I get right? it. So basically you have a pattern of observed distances and you're like, yeah. if this is the, if the fundamental harmonic is 1 billion years, then yeah. how does it align with the pattern that's measured? And what that's you do right. is you continuously increase this, this, this harmonic yeah, and, see how it fits. and you set yeah. it upwards and upwards. And eventually when you get to yeah. 1.4 times 10 to 23, that is the harmonic that appears to fit perfectly with the observed yeah. cycles. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that come out of that. Um, Dewey had a lot of those, the table of ones that were proportions of two and three, right? And I had added to that the ones that were uh, divided by um, seven and multiplied by five. I'd included a lot of those ones in. Um, And it it gets all those. But one of the fascinating things is one of the cycles that had not been put in is there's a a cycle in the Canadian Lynx of 9.6 years. And there's a bunch of things that are found to have either 9.6 or 9 and two-thirds year cycles. So let's take the average of those and call it 9.63 years. Um, It comes out and says there should be a strong cycle at 9.638 years. So uh, it it says that cycle should be there. Now, that's a confirmation that what's being done isn't um, some sort of um, silly thing, uh, and, and it's... It's finding something that's real that does correspond to the universe we're in. So given that it is real, right? So yeah. there's, you know, I think that it's it's a difficult thing to accept as real. But I think yeah. that for the sake of for the sake of discussion, like assuming that that, it is. assuming yeah. that it is. Yeah. How can we? It like my, my instrumental mind immediately goes to like how can I use this to my advantage? Yeah. How can I use this to my advantage, Ray? Well, even well, in terms my, of understanding, well, just understanding after, the universe. I'm money. Uh, <laughs> after I worked that out, um, I wanted to buy a, a new house, right? Mm. And um, there's a cycle. You don't need to know all of that. You just need to know there's a cycle of seven point something years, and, and the cycle of in the house prices is different in America. It's eighteen years. Mm. Uh, you get that, and you look at what they're doing, and you say, "There's a good time to buy." Um, apparently, there's the two families, the uh, Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, one of them used the 40-month cycle since the 1800s, right? And the other one used the um, 18-year cycle in uh, real estate since the 1930s when the Empire State Building was built using the cheapest possible labour. Uh, and those, those families got rich using cycles. So that's how you do it. Interesting. Okay. I have a really far out question that I want to ask Take for us. my friend Doug. <laughs> Can you make a marker for this? Because I yes. want to send this to Doug. <laughs> this is this is really interesting. Do you think so? If if matter, if atoms are just one frequency, one standing wave of yeah. this universally pervading material, this fiber of existence, 
Are there other frequencies of experience? Is it possible that there's structures we can't see because they're overtone structures and that there's whole levels yeah. of consciousness? I mean, this is just getting into the complete, Doug, we love you. Complete weeds, yeah, but yeah. I want to hear your thoughts on that idea. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the other people that I talked to recently were um, uh, Laura Lee. Do you know Laura Lee? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Uh, what's their institute called? It's got a funny name. I can't remember it. Uh, anyway, we went into that because they you were more on the scientific side and they were more on the um, meditation and other side. Um, yes, uh, I do think so. When you, when you do all of this, I've talked about the speed of light of all these waves, but um, when we have an atom, most of the uh, masses in the, in the nucleus. But if they bump against each other, uh, it's a much more spongy thing which the electrons and stuff considered to bang against each other. I call it the atom wave. Um, the the shell, maybe? I don't know. The yeah. shell of the atom? They bump each other. So, that, so the speed of sound is those waves bumping together but because the, iner- the inertia is coming from the nucleus, but the sponginess is coming from that. If you bunch, bang a bunch of neutrons and protons together, a wave will travel at the speed of light. But with these, it travels much slower. Now, um, in the harmonics theory, you've got both, I said both the frequency and the distances show this harmonic structure. So if there's these re- sort of ratio 34, 560 and near powers of that, um, will that show up as velocity also because it's distance over time? And the answer is, yes, it does. When you, when you do that, the speed of sound, if you divide uh, the speed of light by that number, you get about eight kilometers per second. That's very typical of the speed of sound in solid materials, right? Um, if you divide it again, uh, you get, oh, I'm not going to do these calculations in my head, but you get a bunch of other ones. Each time you divide it, the second time you get uh, the, speed, the speed of heat. Now, we don't normally talk about the speed of heat. It's also the speed of um, nerve impulses. Uh, one of the speeds of nerve impulses, there's multiple of them. Um, if you divide it again... Because oh, the, the speed di- of heat is pretty specific for substance. as is. Sub- It varies widely, yeah. So yeah. if you take lots of them, in any of these areas, like if I take the speed of sound in lots of different materials and I analyze it by what I call Kotov's method, it's looking for um, values that are fractions or multiples of the other values. And when I do that, I get a couple of specific values out uh, for sound um, that are that do have the sort of ratios you expect in a harmonic theory. You get the same. You can do the same thing with heat, but heat here yeah, has got a much. It's got a wider range. Then you get the next one. It's the typical speed of ocean currents. Hmm. The next one gives you the typical speed of continental drift. So we're now down to a centimeter per year, right? Um, and those things are at those ratios. And if you have a look at them, you've got the old elements that they had in ancient times, Earth. Um, continental drift, water, ocean currents, um, fire and air and fire and ether. You get you get these five levels and they show up. And if you make a diagram, um, I've got one that I do. Put five lines horizontally corresponding to those velocities, and along the top I put the distance scale of all these structures in the universe, and then I run diagonals. I make it into triangles of sixty degrees. And one of those sets of lines gives you period and one gives you uh, distance. And that way it gives you velocity. And the three are obviously related. There's only two dimensions. Uh, And when you do that um, and start to do things, like, for example, 
Jupiter goes around the sun in 11.86 years. Now, um, 11.86 light years happens to be one of the distance quanta that you find amongst the stars. There's multiple of them, 4.44, Dewey's 4.44. It actually comes out at 4.43, so it agrees very well um, that there are stars like to be that far apart. So uh, then when you do that with Jupiter, but Jupiter's um, doing that period around the sun. Uh, so it's moving at sound velocity. It works out when you work out its velocity. It's a typical sound velocity one. So it falls on that second line down. And you can find these connections. And these connections, I call it the universe wide web, because each, each connection, you've either got a common um, period or um, a common wavelength. If either of those is in common, the things can interact, right? Because the particles that the nodes of the things are interacting, if they're in the same places, if they've got the same period, um, they can interact. So you can see methods of interaction that aren't normally recognized with the structure. So doesn't that imply that, okay, so if you have a universal harmonic breakdown, that everything comes from the single harmonic that's at 1.4 times 10 to the 23 light years, then yes, yeah. could you have a parallel one that's happening in the background? Different? Yeah, you could, but where I was heading with that is those ones, um, uh, they're, um, yeah, okay. Um, I do Vipassana meditation. One of the things that happens when you do that, you 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 um, start observing your breath. Um, you shouldn't try to do this. These are not instructions. You should go on a Vipassana meditation course if anyone wants to do it. Um, then what happens is um, you spend a lot of time observing sensations throughout the body. After you observe them a lot, um, various energetic um, knots and things exist and they dissolve um, if you do it right, which is to observe them with equanimity. Not wanting them, to, not wanting it to change, not wanting it to not change or anything, and these things begin to dissolve, and you begin to become aware of finer and finer, um, um, what do you call them? You can call them realms. Some people call them realms, finer Over, realms. overtones of experience. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, uh, these they, these are the realms that that in Buddhism they describe as um, the human realm. There's five more realms below us, and there's. Um, there's 31 altogether, um, and so the, there's where the different Davis and the um, what are the next ones up from Davis? Um, the got the Brahma, don't know Brahmas, higher Brahmas. higher yeah. higher powers. Yeah, I don't know higher yeah, spirits. Yeah, and the and that changes. The, these things get finer and finer, but there's one point where it actually changes its nature as well. Um, they call them fine material and uh, something else planes. Um, you can experience the, the these immaterial world, the fine material world, and the sensuous yeah. world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so that, I, I think mean, you can find that structure in there to some extent in those those levels that I'm talking about. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I do think that training awareness and being able to become progressively more sensitive to things does expose you to pieces of experience that other people don't get. Right? Higher harmonics. Higher, I mean, yeah. you you know this that it's like if you uh, in science, if you have data and you're looking at the data, 
you will mm-hmm. find something. If you're just collecting yeah. data and you're not looking at it, then you're not going to find anything. Like that's yeah. that's a pretty that's that's a naive truthism, but I think that that is yeah. the case that as it's, soon as you start to look and to to just yeah. to pay attention, you start to impose your own order. Yeah. And that's, that's the foundation of the sciences. Yeah, like Tiff did all this work, which I regard as really, really good. Then him and another guy got a theory. And after that, he stopped finding those things he'd been finding, and he started finding some of them and these other ones that fitted his theory. And I think that um, that's what he was looking for then. Now, um, I don't know I'm immune from this myself, but I try to be. I'm aware of it, and I try to be immune from it. And when I make a mistake, I try to recognize it. So, like, I went two years down the path with the wrong calculation originally Hmm. of harmonics, and then I realized that this didn't do – when I got the 65 thing, I realized it's not right, and that was the other method, and so I had to go back and start again from that. You've got to to put that aside. You can't get your ego mixed up with your theories, you know. You can't do science that way. Well, it's hard to not do that when your career depends upon it. So you're in a particularly – unique and perhaps yeah uh, yeah because i didn't because i retired i had enough money i could do this research um and i didn't have to answer to anyone but when i talked to american professors in that um they weren't very interested when i went to russia they had a very different attitude this was in the 90s right and i asked them why is there this big difference and they said ah it's a tenure system you've got to do incremental knowledge you know in the um to keep your tenure uh and they said uh, our system's changing and ours will be like theirs in a few years' time. Uh, it'll all be gone, the ability to think freely. Yeah. What do you, what, you said that you worked with an incorrect set of calculations at the beginning. How did you change yeah. your mind about this? Yeah, well, it, it, it basically that came out with most people when they start looking at powers of the, the musical relationships and the powers of two over large scales, keep going powers of two all the way as the important ones, and they have the musical notes running off that. And that was what happened. But it didn't fit. It didn't fit the data, so I knew it was wrong. You've got, you can't try and make it fit the data. You've got to make the, the theory's got to – the data's right. The theory – I quite often get people in physics telling me, you, your thing is wrong. And I say, why? Because it's this and this and this. I said, that's your theory, isn't it? Yes. I said, we're not, I'm not trying to match your theory. I'm trying to match the world. Um, and, and a lot of them have trouble with that because they think that their theory is the laws of the universe. Yeah, it's not. Mm. And I don't think mine is, but I think it's an important step towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's worth mentioning. There's, um, I found a, a diagram in a book by John Gribbon. Now, John Gribbon did some clever stuff, but he made a couple of mistakes and he went, it, went out of fashion. But he had one very nice diagram I liked, and it, it put in one direction it put mass or energy, and in the other direction, it put um, uh, wavelength or um, period, whatever you want, wavelength, yeah, wavelength or diameter. And when you do that, um, it turns out you can't go everywhere in this diagram. There are two diagonals in it. One of them is the limit from black holes due to general relativity. You can't go past that. And the other limit is the quantum limit, um, and it runs at right angles to the other one. Um, that's one of them running. If we say a triangle, there's a point on the left, a point up, there's a diagonal running up to the right, there's a diagonal running down to the left. That's the quantum and that's the general relativity. At the right-hand side should be the size of the universe, which we all had wrong to start with. Um, and then I realised it's got to go a bit further right. Um, and so that gives you the um, 
general relativity works off that and works well near that diagonal. Quantum mechanics works well near that one. Harmonic theory works right across, but it's more of a ghostly thing. It doesn't say it has to do this. It just subtly influences it all, I think. Uh, and I think that um, a proper um, ether theory can combine all three uh, and um, and do that. And I've got a couple of clues I can offer because I'm getting old and there's parts of this I'm never going to do now because my brain's not that good anymore. Um, when you get to the particles, the uh, um, they divide them up into a number of categories. There, there's the um, electron in its lot, um, which we'll call one. There's the mesons, which are supposedly made of two quarks. We'll call them the two. Protons and neutrons and all of those big family, which are threes. They've got three quarks. And they've made a couple of other ones. They've got pentaquarks and other stuff now with more. But I think what I think those numbers, one, two, three, are actually the number of waves around the equator of the thing, right? Um, the, the electron doesn't, the electron doesn't, um, that's the only one that's been solved, by the way. Milo will solve the uh, equation for the electron. Um, and uh, so that's known. Um, and, uh, and, and Is that, that different than the wave equation for the electron? I don't know. Okay, um, fair enough. I don't, try, I don't try to follow quantum mechanics. Um, and, it just and doesn't seem that different, honestly. Particle physics is, um, well, I can tell you because uh, Feynman and Wheeler actually have in their book um, a thing where you imagine the whole universe is filled with um, the ether. And it, it, just to make it easy, I think of it as like jelly, which you guys call jello. Um, and you put a sphere in it, right? And you get the north and south pole of the sphere and you rotate it 180 degrees and then you spin it. Now, it's taking the, 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 the jello's joined to it, so it's got to go around as well. But you think that's just going to rip it to shreds, but it doesn't. What happens is it goes around like that and around like this. It goes under, over, under, over the um, thing. And after two rotations, the back's where it started. In other words, it's a spin half particle. So the spin half particle. Now, Feynman and Wheeler were aware of this model and of the spin half. Uh, Milo Wolf proved that that model is is the electron. You know, it does work. It does everything. Every every property of the electron comes out of that. I think that the equations for the proton and neutron are going to be much more difficult. But I think trying to add extra dimensions to reality and all of that stuff are totally unnecessary. Um, I think you've got to do it using a simple nonlinear equation um, in the ether and um, work out how do you make it uh, spin around with three bits and do that. Uh, and and that's, that's how to do it. Um, yeah, we've got a, we've, we've got we've we did an animation of this actually for one of our other channels, which everybody should check out. We'll send it to you later. I think you might. Okay, enjoy great. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The spin one half is is an awesome little puzzle for the material science of the atom. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want. If, do you have anything else about that? Because I have something really far out that I want to ask you. Um, yeah, we've been talking to some archaeologists lately. And there is this, there is a cycle in Mesoamerica that's driving me absolutely nuts because the Mesoamerican civilizations had a solar calendar. They also had this 260 year calendar, which yeah. coincides. No, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe you're right. You're right. That's very close to like the visible portion of Venus's, which I think is like 256 or something like that. Yeah. Um, but 
I wondered if you'd thought any about that because it coincided with the solar calendar every 52 years, which is a huge holiday for them. And yeah, yeah, I don't know if you've given any. Thought yeah, that. Um, I, I've looked at I, I looked at some of those ones, those taken different ones, but and um, I their their use they did use Venus, um, and it does this lovely dance with the Earth every eight years, you know, and um, it's a lot. It's very interesting stuff. And I can see where they liked it. Venus is a nice bright thing in the sky, next brightest thing after the moon. Uh, and, and I like all that stuff, but I haven't found any real connection with the, the cycles that I've studied. But the no, no, 600, Venus, it is. Yeah, it's 600 years. Days. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, 263 days. Okay. So yeah. Still not quite. But well, it's an, it's an average. You said 600 years, right? It's different. Mm. We'll say it one more you time. You said 600 years, right? No, so it's two hundred, and they they have a uh, no the other one, the other cycle. It's the, 52. fifty two. Fifty two, yeah. yeah. I believe fifty two. I thought you said something about six hundred years at one point. Mm, I'm nope. not sure. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, can I mention six hundred years? <laughs> uh, there's there seemed to uh, at one stage I thought there was a six hundred year climate cycle because people had said that, but it doesn't actually seem to be a very strong one. There's three fifty five, and there's two hundred and seven, and there's some others, uh, five hundred and ten. But um, it does seem that ones of that order um, do give the rise of and fall of civilizations, you know, that, that you get civilizations when the temperatures are higher. But uh, there is a 600-year cycle. Um, if you go back about 1200 BC, uh, there's a fellow called Moses, right? Um, and then you come to about 600 BC, there was uh, the Buddha. There was um, Lao Tse, Confucius, um, and Zoroaster most made an appearance about then. Then you get around Nort, you get Christ, and then at 600, you get um, uh, the other fella, um, Muhammad. At 1200, um, there's, there were a couple of revisions, but there doesn't seem to be anything new. And in the 1800s, there's about a whole host of different religions started up around different things. So there does seem to be a 600-year cycle um, in um, religions. If you want to start a new one, the next best time is the year 2424. Mm, um, I was just so, thinking that. I was um, like, we're, we're, cle- we're in the yeah. clear for at least a couple hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but there's some other interesting things relating to that. Um, at one stage, I was making a little chart where I put a, for every one of these three, four, five, six O ratios, I'd go along a heart line, then put another line underneath for the next one, and the next one, and I was doing all the different intervals of different things, and I had the six hundred year one on it uh, for those. So I look at what's if you divide that by three, four, five, six O, multiply it, what you get. When you divide it by that, you get um, I don't know what you get. Um, uh, you have to do it twice. Um, somewhere along the way, you get to a, a weekly cycle. How have I got that hooked up? But there's a, a pattern of weekly people go to church, and this is the, when they get new, new uh, saints. And then a seventh of that is a day, and a seventh of that one is about a lifetime. And then when you divide that by something else, you get things that match, like um, you get brain waves and, um, and cycles that, that are the nearest thing to um, – thinking things in the economy, you know. And the whole thing does seem to match up. You can make patterns there, and it may be just finding patterns that aren't there, but there do seem to be things, and you can go several layers. One of the best ones I got that went multiple layers, in the solar system, you've got the outer planets that are on this uh, 80 and 160-minute light-minute light waves. The inner planets are on three- and six-minute waves. 
the outer planets are made of hydrogen and helium, and so is the sun. Hydrogen and helium are atomic masses. One and two are hydrogen, and four is helium. Right? Uh, if you have a star that go, that finishes burning all its hydrogen, the next one it goes to a twelve. It makes carbon. Is is um, um, what's his name worked out and didn't get a Nobel Prize for um, Fred Hoyle. Now the inner planets. They are on these three and six minute waves, which are a 14th or a 28th of the outer planet waves, right? What's, what's the Earth made of? The atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, which is 14. The, um, the crust is oxygen and silicon, and silicon is 28. The core is iron, which is a mass 56. Masses are, um, according to Planck, related directly to frequency, right? Um, the frequency of those particles is that. So now that's actually six of those big steps of three, four, five, six, zero oh, from the scale of the solar system to the scale of the atoms, and you're still seeing those planets on the same scale as as the the, the particles they've got match their orbits, and the outer planet's particles match their orbits on that scale. That's interesting because for astro. So astronomy, not astro. I guess astrophysics too is that one of the biggest challenges is looking out to be able to figure out what something is made out of, and yeah. you have to depend on spectroscopy because you're waiting yeah. for it to pass in front of a sun so you can look through sure, the atmosphere. Yeah. But yeah. it would be really cool to look at some of that data as people are trying to figure out what the the yeah. things are made of to see if that correlates to what the cycle theory would predict. That'd be really yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, I need to do another one. I did one with some of those um, uh, when they didn't have enough, but they've got a, so many. They've got thousands of planets now, haven't they? So uh, I should put those through the cut my code of method one and see what comes out of that. It'd be interesting. Yeah, that'd be very cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's there's so much here, and I I think that it's best to to dive into these things a little bit at a time, so that you have the opportunity to go into the world and to to see how it fits and to start looking at things. And so. Mm. For people who have listened, what do you, and, and they're interested in being able to tease these things apart, how do you suggest that they go about it? Like, how, how can people pursue this? Because it's not a conventional, you can't go it's to university not, no. for it. So what do you do? No, well, you can go to university. I had one, I've had one person once ask me advice to what, how do I do this at university? And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> to, uh, make sure you include um, some of the maths of it. Um, and uh, I, they wanted me to sort of um, um, be a guide for them, and, and I declined, which I realised later was a mistake. I should have said yes, because um, they might have been the person that takes over from me when I kick off. Um, so anyway, um, I would say um, look widely. Right? I used to go to the library and read. I'd look over in the geology department. I'd go in the astronomy department. I'd go, I'd go in the biology. I'd go in the economics. I'd go in, and I'd read anything I'd find on cycles on any of them. Um, and that's how I gathered my stuff until I found out about the Foundation for Study of Cycles, and they had a big library. Unfortunately, um, the Foundation for the Study of Cycles had a couple of hiccups, um, and they lost all that library. Oh, wow. um, and uh, and they, they were reformed some years ago on a, on a proper footing, and it's going very well now. Again, they've got a board of directors, and and they're bright guys, and they they they're all um, they're all in the financial area. So I'm the science guy, and my job is to try and get more scientists that are interested in 
in the old days, the foundation had an, an astronomer, a geologist, an agriculturalist, and a, and a climatologist, and all these. We want to get back to that. Um, and there are people that publish in those areas, but it seemed to be a dying thing, you know, the, um, not so many young ones doing that. So uh, it's, it's good. It would be good to get some young ones uh, publishing in those areas. And, and to that end, uh, I do have some funds available for people um, that want to study. Uh, it's interesting because I listed, I list three things related to the person meditation, and then I list three things in my um, my um, uh, charity. Uh, the first, the first one is related to harmonic theory. The second one is related, to, just related to cycles, really. Um, that's interesting studies in that. And the third one is called demystification of science. Yeah, we'll take some of that money. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you guys are doing some of that. Uh, so um, so I, I should send you something. Um, you were doing it already, so I'm not going to send you as much as I'd send someone who's going to make a, who's going to start a career in it, right? Because I'm trying to get new things happening. Uh, but um, well, we do like we do. We are supported by listeners, and it's pretty awesome. Like, and all the money has gone right back into the show. You know, we're we're doing some mm. travels this winter. We're starting to make friends with a lot of the people in person that have been on the show, and we're gonna eventually be able to do this this as a live stream and. You know, yeah. it, it actually does matter a lot. I just want to say, yeah. so yeah, yeah, you know, not not for you necessarily, but like just for anybody who's listening. You know, if people want to just give a couple of dollars, it really does add up, and it really is allowing us to yeah. do some incredible stuff. Because I think that yeah. the goal is to to grow this into something that is much larger than just a podcast, right? So this is the yeah. way that we're meeting yeah. people and we're finding the ideas that are most interesting. And I think yeah. that down the line, that what it's going to evolve into is. In, in my ideal world, it would be a research institute. Like, I want to bring yeah. together the people that are interested in these questions that can't find funding other places yeah. and yeah. be able to serve as a clearinghouse for funds for people who are working on projects so that they can yeah. get published and they can contribute because yeah. it's like you said something interesting about the science in the Soviet Union uh -huh. and how it was changing in the aftermath of its collapse. And yeah. there is a calcification of institutions that occurs over time that yes. you you have to realize that that is part of what an institution does. It has a life and death. It yeah. has a yeah. life and yeah. death, yeah. like yeah. everything else. There's a cycle. <laughs> it's time and, for some new and, institutions. When, the, when, yeah. when they asked the Buddha, he said, all compounded things eventually pass away. Um, and, he, and they said, what about your teaching? Yes, he says, that's the same. And, and apparently at that time, um, some, of the, some of the monks predicted that um, that, um, that it goes in successive 500-year intervals where it decays away, where the level they call wisdom is there and then concentration and then something else, they pass away, and then morality, and they pass away. But he predicted there'd be another one uh, 2,500 years after the Buddha. Um, and, and, and the teacher that I follow, um, he, he started teaching in the 1950s, which was that time. Um, and so we've got 500 years of a pure teaching and then that starts to die away again. And then you have to wait for the next Buddha and they are very, very far apart. Oh, uh, well, if you so said, you said 2,500 years, yes. we're right, we're, I mean, I just looked at now and Buddha lived uh, 500 BC. So we're, uh, yeah, we're just exactly. about due. 
Oh, we we are there. Yeah, um, but there's, you'll find two different dates for the Buddha. The um, all the Westerners use one set of dates, huh. and the Buddhist countries use a different set of dates about eighty years earlier. I don't know if one got mixed up with his birth or his death, but um, yeah. So I use the ones that the I figure the Buddhist country Buddhist countries ought to know best. Definitely, yeah. 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 I mean, this is, it's 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 really fascinating. I think that the more that we can realize the interconnected nature of things and the way that we want to be able to change the world and we want to be able to say that we have an influence on the universe, but I, there's almost a certain reverence. There's a certain spirituality in being able to yeah. look out and to recognize that you are a mote of dust in the vibration yes. of the universe yeah. rather yeah. than yeah. being a god. Yeah, and we spend yeah. a lot of times being able to oh. harness. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, okay. I want. I want to go and give a couple of quotes here. Um, but first of all, on the subject of you starting an institute and getting people in to do things, about how much do you reckon you need for one person for a year um, to be doing studies there? Roughly, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there's been a lot of research about what sort of salary actually makes for a reasonable life. Depends also if they're doing experimental work or theoretical work. I mean, it's obviously extremely expensive to employ people. Yeah. So but I don't know. Say PhD, PhD students or something like that. They don't need as much, do they? Yeah, if they're working on like a part-time basis or on a small project. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. You could probably offer them peanuts and they would do it, honestly. Yeah. Um, because I would like to explore with you the possibility of me offering one scholarship each year for someone or maybe for, for several years. Oh, um, that'd be, that'd be really that. amazing. Yeah. 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 Now, I've got to bring up some quotes. Let's, yeah, let's hear them. Uh, so this is Edward Dewey. In so far as cycles are meaningful, all science that has been developed in the absence of cycles knowledge is inadequate and partial. Thus, if cyclic forces are real, any theory of economics or sociology or history or medicine or climatology that ignores non-chance rhythms is manifestly incomplete as medicine was before the discovery of germs. Now, I love that because that's true of all of those fields at the moment. They're not taking account of the cycles, which are uh, cosmic forces affecting us. And just to give you another view on the same thing, Chazewski. Uh, before, was, be, hold on. Before you go to that oh, yeah, quote, yeah. I want to I want to add that there is that that perfectly lines up with something that I've been realizing lately, which is that the models to treat the models that exist as purely wrong is foolish. Yeah. You have to treat them as incomplete. Yes, because sure. yes. there there's some boundary condition where what has been described and worked out is accurate. And yes. all that you have to do to really make it snap into place is make the yeah. theory more complete. And I think that that's a really yeah. brilliant point. And I also love, yes. I love the humility where he's like, he's not like, I'm the greatest scientist in the world. Cycles are 100% yeah. real. He's like, or 100% of everything. Or 100% of everything. Yeah. He's like, if right. they are, then we must yeah. consider. If they're real. Them, which is yeah. just yeah. like, that's a yeah. lot of humility. Yeah. He, he was a careful man with all that stuff. This is a Chizewski one. Life is a phenomenon. Its production is due to the influence of the dynamics of the cosmos on a passive subject. It lives due to dynamics. Each oscillation of organic pulsation is coordinated with the cosmic heart and the grandiose whole of nebulous stars, the sun and the planets. This is much more poetic, but it's also very scientifically accurate. Mm. So we're like the passive one. subject, by the way. We're the passive subject. We're mm. just dancing to the tune of the universe. 
Uh, it's funny because the ancient astronomers are obsessed with that. Every like every yeah. last the, one of the them. Hindus have known that for a long time. Now the Indians have known that for a long time, haven't they? But even like Robert Hooke or or Huygens or Newton, these people were very keen on the musical relationship of the heavenly bodies. It was somehow yeah. it was an indicate. I mean, they took it very religiously, of course, in their con- yes, cultural yeah. context. But it was very much a, a guiding light in what they were trying to make how they were trying to make sense of what's going on out there yeah now i've got a couple more here that's not it i'm just trying to find there's a couple more dewy ones which are worth doing Mm. um where are they i've got too much stuff here i'm searching the pictures of them all to try and find the right graphics ah here we go um So this is um, this is in the case for cycles. So I recommend people to download that. There is considerable evidence that there are natural environmental forces that alternately stimulate and depress mankind in the mass. These same forces may also affect plant and animal life, weather, and even such normally unchanging things as chemical reactions. Mm. Uh, now that's interesting because the um, the Russians have done a lot on that. Um, there was an Italian named Bacardi who did a lot of study of chemical reactions changing depending on cosmic influences. Uh, if he went underground, it was different to on the surface and so on. He did a lot of study. And the Russians took that further um, and they found it applies to um, nuclear de- atomic decay as well. Um, There's another one from Dewey. The argument for the existence of these forces runs something like this. Almost everything fluctuates. Many things fluctuate in cycles or waves. Many of these waves are spaced very regularly and have other characteristics that indicate that the spacing cannot reasonably be chance. Non-chance spacing must, by the meaning of the words, have a cause. This cause must be internal, dynamic, or interacting, feedback, or predator prey, or external. In any event, it must be a force of some sort. In many instances, this force cannot reasonably be internal or interacting, therefore, presumably, is external. He, I think he came to that reluctantly, and this was the advice he got from Feynman, who was a, was a great physicist. I'm indebted to Professor Richard P. Feynman, theoretical physicist of the California Institute of Technology at Pasadena, for the basic structure of the article. Professor Feynman once said to me, in regards to cycles, the proper scientific assumption to start with is they are chance. If they cannot reasonably be chance, the next assumption should be they are caused within the phenomenon or the system of which the phenomenon is an interacting part. Only if the cycles cannot be a result of chance or endogenous causes should we undertake to postulate external or exogenous causes. This formula of Professor Feynman's has constituted the basic philosophy of the foundation from that day to this. It is the framework around which the following paper has been built. That's the case for cycles paper. And um, I should mention that um, um, the guy that's running at the place now, um, uh, Richard, um, oh, God, um, names keeps coming out of my head. Anyway, the man who's running it now very much believes in that philosophy of Dewey and is trying to recreate the whole thing because we're trying to get it back to where it was when Dewey was around um, and then we can go forward from there. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. That's awesome. I love your work. It's uh, it's really stimulating in terms of yeah. all the possibilities for, like, just bleeds into every single aspect of everything we study here. Yeah, it's cosmic yeah. and it's beautiful. And, sci- I, you know, science is rarely beautiful, but I think that this is a beautiful theory. Yeah, it's, it is. Um, um, a couple of ones that come to mind is one of the great um, physicists was asked, 
what are you guys really trying to do? And he said, oh, we're trying to work out a formula that's small enough to fit on the front of a T-shirt um, and explains everything that happens in the universe. So I put his quote on the back of a T-shirt and I put what I thought might be the formula at that stage. It might be, I don't know if it is or not, uh, on the front of a T-shirt and I had that. It didn't, get, it didn't get that many questions. I've got a couple of other T-shirts to get more comments. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll make one of those one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Ray, it's been, you know, it's, it's been so dense. I want to step back and process some of this stuff, but maybe we'll yeah. get, get the opportunity to talk to you again down the line. Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. Let me just check my little list here to see if I mentioned the things I should have. <laughs> Last chance. No, I think we did cover most of them. Nice. Um, yeah. Very good. Uh, there's a lot more. I've been making a, a chart. I, 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 it's, it looks like this. Um, you won't be able to read it, but you can get the idea that there's a lot of words on it. And each word is one area of study or one person who did some study. And I'm trying – I want to make it so that I have several overlays, one of areas of study, one of um, specific stuff, one of um, and one of people that did studies and show how they all sort of link up and I'll do one in each colour and have them so people can pop which one they want to the front uh, is an idea um, so that people want to go further because people will have some people will have an interest that's just one part of that you know um, they can take it further and mm. so and if people want to find more on your work it's at ray.tomes.biz which we've mentioned yeah. in the chat have that's, you written books? No uh, I've had about um, six goes and I've discovered I'm much better at raving in person than I am at writing. Right. But um, I'm gradually gathering it together. And after I've done these talks with the Cycles Foundation, I've decided that before the end of next year, I've got to put out a book. And my plan is it will be very cheap. Um, we'll offer it through other people like yourselves who can, who can get it even cheaper, can have a discount. Um, and I just want to get lots of them out there. So Beautiful. it'll be on. It'll be electronic form only. I read about a woman who wrote um, novels, and um, she went along to um, probably Amazon. I don't know. Is that where people put their electronic books on Amazon? Yeah, yeah, and everything. Else. I think so. So she, um, they told her you should charge twenty dollars. She says, "No, I don't want to charge twenty dollars." Uh, I, th- I can't remember what she charged. It might have been two dollars or three dollars or five dollars at the most. It was around that range. And um, they said, you won't make any money like that. She said, I don't care. And she did. She sold 10 times as many copies as any book had previously by charging a tenth as much. So she got the same amount of money, but she got a lot more people reading it. Mm, and then smart. more and more came back for her next one. So she kept doing it that way. Uh, and I decided that's the way to go. I'm not planning to write more. One book would be my, my limit. Yeah. Well, let's plan to let's plan to talk again uh, when the book is when you're when you're writing the book or when you've written the book because I think yeah. it'll be good to after you've had a chance to get all those ideas yeah. aligned on paper it'll be really fantastic to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed. enjoyed. I, I, I like you two people. You're lovely, and I like what you're doing. It's it's very great. Thanks. Thanks.